destiny finds somebody to do the work that we need to do in order for this world to continue. Those are some of the strong things I think leaders need to have is patience, understanding, compassion, and um, love what you do. You know, love what you do. So having that mindset all the time, knowing that you're held accountable for something, and at the same time that you might not tomorrow be able to do this, is something that we should that should drive us to continue to excel and continue to give those next leaders uh, the goals and the tools that they need to succeed. Because if they don't succeed, and if we don't succeed, the society doesn't succeed. And if the society doesn't succeed, then we're in trouble. A chance encounter with a Muslim brother during his International Visitor Leadership Program, or IVLP, exchange gave Imtiaz Asin a new perspective on life. While traveling in the U.S., Imtiaz experienced tolerance, cultural awareness, and diversity within the melting pot of cultures. When he returned to Canada, Imtiaz brought these lessons back to his community, where he is the vice president of the largest Muslim organization, BC Muslim Association. He embodies positive change and humble leadership. In this episode, we hear how Imtiaz is empowering women and the next generation of leaders and why he believes tolerance comes from the heart. Everyone has a story to tell, people, places, and international exchange. Join us to hear the extraordinary stories of exchange alumni and how their lives have been forever changed. This is Voices of Exchange. My name is Imtiaz Asin. Um, I was an IVLP alumni in 2010. I actually went on the program on uh, inspiring young leaders uh, to be involved in civic engagement. And I'm actually the vice president of youth development services for the British Columbia Muslim Association, which is the largest Muslim organization here in Western Canada. Our organization spans over 15 branches, and we also have two elementary schools. Uh, we also provide social services to the less fortunate, as well as funeral services, social development, and a big thing in our community is youth development services. So this is something that I have been doing since I was a young person, and now I'm getting older, so I'm not considered a youth anymore, but we're still trying to instill those tools that we have gained um, previously from our exchanges and our um, uh, individuals that we came across onto the younger generations. So uh, just a little bit blurb on how I actually got involved in this IVLP program, um, we received an email from the U.S. Consulate Office here in Vancouver um, talking about, is anybody in your community interested on in taking exchange programs and what it entails and what you can benefit out of it? So at that time, I was the Vice President of Youth Development Services, and um, our head office got this email from the Consulate Office. So um, the president of our organization got a hold of it, and I said, hey, you know what? Um, I would be interested in it. Then our executive said, hey, listen, you're at the top of the pedestal. You should be giving everyone else a chance before you can go, right? So I said, okay, that's fair. So we actually ran the ad in all of our Muslim community newspapers, and uh, we put it through all of our branches, and not one person applied because they did not know it was something that was new, and uh, they did not know anything about it. So on the three days before the deadline, the whole association actually agreed to send me. And me not knowing what it entails, what I'm getting myself into, uh, the, I, the U.S. Council Office invited me over um, to, you know, say what type of programs do you want to get interested in. And at the same time, I did not know that 
how much of an impact this would have on the future of my life and my dealings with the community. So the, we went and uh, I went the first day uh, when I had hit D.C., uh, there was nobody there because I traveled some of the farthest and I had my flight was a day after. I came uh, on my own from the airport and everyone was sleeping. Uh, all, all of our aides and everyone was sleeping. So I was like, am I at the right hotel? So I sat in the lobby for at least a good 45 minutes and there was not even the front desk person there. I have all my bags there and I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be something that I'm going to have to start to do. So Actually, an individual came. Um, he was a tall individual, um, and he had an accent. And he said, oh, how are you, brother? And then I assumed because uh, he presumed that I'm Muslim, he called me brother. That's the greeting that we give because in Islam, we consider all of our, everyone our brothers and our sisters. So then right away, I said, oh, how are you, brother? He said, oh, uh, I'm from Sudan. I knew, okay, fine. This is from the same exchange program. And then we just started talking. And for like a good 15, 20 minutes, he never asked my name. So he said he called and somebody and then the person came down, got me checked in. We went in. So that was a start of my program. Uh, it was really uh, difficult. But then I thought to myself, like, look how destiny works. I come from one side of the world. This guy comes from the other side of the world. And we meet in a lobby to help each other. And how did that happen? It happened through IVLP. That was like the number one thing. The smallest things that happened with IVLP and the exchanges that we have with individuals, a lot of us take to heart and we keep it uh, always. That um, The exchanges um, were so different for other people, but people thought because I was Canadian, it was almost the same. And we think of ourselves as our nation, as a big, diverse and cultural nation building from newcomers. But I always had that notion that United States wasn't like that. And there was something that was I was naive about. But when I went into the exchange programs and seen some of the programs that are being done in the most rural parts of the United States and how diversity plagues and how based on that diversity, we have cultural awareness I was mind blown. I was in Pensacola. And as you know, uh, in Canada, we have a large First Nations um, group here and large First Nations here that we support through government and right now working with Truth and Reconciliation. But when I went to uh, Pensacola, I, I actually went and we went to one of the um, uh, res reserves there and we learned about the Highway of Tears. And um, what? And I, I was just mind blown that this is happening here and uh, what people went through, um, our First Nations there. And that was something that I can connect with because it's happening at home. So then that's when I started to realize, hey, you know what? This, this is a big melting pot of cultures. In his role as VP of the BC Muslim Association, Imtiaz engages both Muslim and non-Muslim youth and has made a platform for women within the community. But it isn't just equity or acceptance that motivates him. Through his work, Imtiaz tries not only to make his communities feel safe, but also to answer the question, how can we instill understanding and tolerance in the wider world? Now that the community is made, those mosques are becoming empty. Why? Because the younger generation is not having a connection 
between the between our organization and our elders. So we, me myself, thought, how can we change that? How can we do something where children and youth want to do something and be happy of who they are? They don't have to choose one or the other. Being global citizens or being Muslims or being any part of ethnic identity have to choose. So we started uh, sporting programs where we would integrate a little bit of religion and more sports. So whereas we would have um, one thing is that we had a what's called a, a, a Young Ummah BCMA, which is the organization that's subsidiary of BCMA. Uh, and it's been around for about 12 years. It's operated fully, and we're a nonprofit organization that runs solely on uh, donations. So this group of young individuals and myself at the helm thought on how different ways that we can engage our youth, Muslim and non-Muslim. Because at that time, coming back 2010, 2011, 2012, there was a big, uh, big influx of hate crimes and there was a big influx of Islamophobia, even within Vancouver, where I live, where there's predominantly Indo-Canadians here. Uh, in Surrey, which is just 15 minutes away from me, has the largest influx of Indo-Canadians uh, of Sikh origin other than India. So now that can give you a grasp of how diverse this area was. And at the same time, we were having hate crimes here. People, women, young uh, women as early as 17 or 18 were scared to go on the bus or the SkyTrain because they used to have their hijabs pulled. And you hear this in bigger bigger parts of uh, you know Canada, eastern part, Toronto, Ontario, but not on, around here in these western parts. And that really startled us as uh, young leaders, and that really startled us as um, individuals. So we started to say, hey, let's give these attainable goals and to create a basis of understanding between each other. So the first program, some of the programs that we did, because forgive me, we have over 15, 10, about 10, 12, 10 years worth of programming. But to start off, we thought sisters are the number one um, targets uh, as victims of Islamophobia. Why? Because if you look at me right now, you can't tell I'm a Muslim, but you can tell a woman she's a Muslim by her hijab. So this was the number one issue. We created a self-defense class where we created um, a self-defense program um, organized and instituted by certified trainers. And to it was over a six-week program where we taught them how to feel safe in their surroundings, understand their surroundings, and at the same time protect themselves. And I thought it was going to be a big flaw. Why? Because we have a lot of um, families that are from predominantly uh, uh, Asia, Asia, where Pakistan, India, Arab countries, um, and we thought that because, you know, not trying to take away, but a lot of these families are very conservative when it comes to interaction uh, between men and women. And it's, it's, it's perfectly understandable. But we wanted to break that barrier that, hey, you know what? Our tolerance comes from here. It doesn't come from our eyes and our head. It comes from our heart. So I had to pitch this to my executives in my association. And the first time it got shot down that, oh, we're going to get women jumping around in the mosque trying to learn how to fight, but they didn't understand because this is a new concept. They did not know that this is something that's needed. But when we went the second time to pitch it to them, they said, okay, let's try it. We tried it. 120 women attended um, that session over six weeks. And, and it was so, um, so mesmerizing to see 120 women uh, well, I wasn't allowed to be there because it was all women. But the, the, the gist that I get from it is that all of these women were so empowered. 
right? They're so empowered that a Muslim organization would give them these tools and uh, to go and to be feel safe. And that was just the beginning. The rest, it just shot off. We started doing uh, soccer tournaments where we would invite what we would call guest players. Guest players are individuals um, who are not Muslim. So the reason why we would invite non-Muslim is for propagation, not to kind of brainwash them where people might think, but it was to give them an understanding of what Islam is, uh, to see how we actually interact. We bleed just like you do. We laugh just like you do. We, we eat the same Netflix and chill. We do everything. We wanted to create this understanding to say, hey, we're, we're the same people. And it really, really kicked off from there. Um, some of the programs that we continue to do was something that's called Spirit of Islam. And we would invite all of our interfaith leaders, our priests uh, from the synagogues, from the mandirs, from the gurdwaras, all of these ethnic groups would come and they would come to understand Islam for what it is. And this was coming from being a global leader, having those attainable goals. You, when going back to what I was telling you of understanding how tolerance and diversity needs to occur. And that training is what I got from IVLP. That's what I got on how to initiate and how to bring those those traits out into individuals. Now, when we created change that, the community started to see, hey, these guys actually know what they're talking about. And it's we have it tough, but the women have it tougher and they're not given a platform. Once you give an individual a platform to excel, them being excelling is what's going to show that, hey, you know what? This person can do it. And now we started to change that. We started to bring women into the organization until I think about eight, nine years ago, women weren't allowed to vote for the president. We had a total different wing of, uh, of for the women. So the women were independent. They did everything on their own. They had their own president. They had everything. But the executive offices were men. So... We changed that. We had women being able to vote. Now what we're doing is now we're actually having women to come into the council and to sit shoulder to shoulder with between men and women, keeping in part of that religious context, but understanding we all are leaders and all of the issues pertain to all of us. Because like I said, once you give them a platform to excel, and it's not, uh, I shouldn't say them, I should say anybody, give uh, give anybody a platform to expel, uh, excel, you are based on your performance. So when they see the sisters excelling, they say, hey, you know what? We, we didn't know what we had. So now our organization is excelling. There's still, like I said, a lot of work in progress, but that was the main component for change. The community's mosque is located on what's known as the Highway to Heaven, a one-mile road that has 20 places of worship, including a church, a Buddhist monastery, a Hindu temple, a Vedic cultural center, and a Sikh gurdwara. But it took a mundane infrastructure change to bring these communities together. And Imtiaz believes there is still work to be done to create tolerance and to fight Islamophobia. I think 50% of combating Islamophobia is our responsibility as Muslims, our responsibility as global leaders. We need to show the beauty and what, what our religion is all about and how it intertwines with the everyday occurrences of everyone else that we have here. And I think that was really a productive um, session that we had. We've created uh, a lot of programming where we um, educate the media about Islamophobia. We educate community leaders, even uh, police officers on when they attend on call to the mosque, 
on how to deal with uh, Muslim individuals. And if you recall, we had uh, the New Zealand shootings that happened a couple of years ago. And mind you, us, our family being from Fiji, New Zealand and Fiji are neighbors. So we actually knew one or two people that perished in that mosque during those shootings from uh, being priests in the local cities in Fiji. This is the this is something that I learned uh, when dealing in during my IVLP program. It's okay to be mad. It's okay to be sad because having those feelings inside is what's going to break you. But we need to have interaction. We need to communicate to understand each other's feelings. Ten years ago, uh, I would never see um, a priest or a rabbi or um, a guru or have any, any ethnic background in my mosque. This happens with a lot of organizations. Like we think within the box. We're, we're in a different mindset. We're thinking about constructing religious infrastructure and not thinking about the community outside of our, of our box. And once we had all of this put together, then we said, hey, you know what? We can't be always in our box together. And we, we and our main office in Richmond, British Columbia, which is the same city as where our airport is, is on a street, and you can Google it. It's called the Highway to Heaven. On that street, you have every single ethnic group's places of worship. Highway to Heaven on Richmond. So you have a synagogue, you have a church, you have a Sikh Gurdwara, you have a Hindu Mandir, and you have a Shia mosque, and you have a Sunni mosque, all on the same block. So this is, this is what uh, created and what broke the ice was, it so happens in that area, and this is so weird, that in that area, um, they were running, if you know a little bit about plumbing, they were running on septic tanks. So every couple of months, a truck would have to come and take the sludge out of all of the people's tanks. And what happened was the city wanted to change that into a full sewer system. But in order for us to change into a sewer system, the pipes needed to go through each other's properties, right? And we never spoke to each other. And when this initiative came and we had a community meeting, that's what broke the ice. Something so small and it created a, a, a connection and it created an interface dialogue. Um, it created a lot of awareness. Um, now uh, it comes nowadays. It's like we have a church, a Fujiana church, uh, right next to us, and during on Friday prayers, they give us their full parking. And yeah, we're we're bad about it. Some people park like they're parking, uh, you know, uh, like on the middle of a dirt road, and they're tolerant because they understand. And uh, when we had the uh, New Zealand massacres, there were individuals that were coming to our mosque with flowers. Me growing up, I never experienced that. Before. I never saw that that someone be coming to my mosque with flowers. Um, and uh, these were the changes that we seen that the people around us actually understood who we are and uh, they tolerated us. They might not agree. We might not agree, but that doesn't mean that we should be able not to coexist. Ultimately, Imtiaz believes that change has to come from passing the torch to the young. Part of the challenge of that is in old modes of thinking and in opening up mindsets of the older generation to listen to new ideas and to new people further adding to the rich mosaic that is Canada. Even though Imtiaz continually works to increase tolerance inside and outside the Muslim community, he knows that one day, he too must pass the torch along to the next generation of leaders, and that society needs the young to succeed. We have to be able to integrate 
the old and the new, right? The old always thinks that we're coming with new vibrant ideas and they're threatened by these new vibrant ideas that it might shake the very existence of what this organization or what the society was built on. But what the only thing it is is that, to be honest with you, ideas become stale. I, ideologies become stale. All we're trying to do is to create those ideologies and re-energize them, uh, to create those is- issues and re-energize them. For example, um, we have a lot of young intellectuals in our Muslim community, and it was always older people becoming part of committees, whether it's uh, a grant committee, whether it's investigation committee, um, the PAC. We have, like I said, we have two schools, the Board of Education. There would always be predominantly older people accounting, uh, finance department, older people. So we actually sat one day and I said, did you guys ever think why nobody ever applies? They're like, why? I said, because you've created such a big gap between the old and the new that when they wanted to be heard, you weren't listening. And now when someone else is listening to them, you're asking them, how come they're not talking to us? And that shed, that put a big light bulb into our organization and all organizations in the Muslim community and abroad. Um, this happens in many, or like you just said, Maria, in a lot of uh, organizations where people are very uh, hesitant about passing on that torch uh, to the younger generation. And it's still work in progress for us. Um, you know, like I had aspirations to become the president of my association a couple of years ago. And uh, the first thing that someone asked me is like, you can't become president because he's not married. He doesn't know what being having a family is about. So then I thought for a second, I said, you know what? If an organization uh, dictates my um, social life compared to my contribution to society, then that that doesn't, I don't deserve to be part of that organization, nor do I want to be part of that organization. But then I thought to myself, hey, it's an ideology. It's not a person that dislikes me. It's not a group of people that hate us or I shouldn't use the word hate, understand us. It's something that's a social norm in society. And when I say this, particularly speaking in my organization, people got married early. People were developed early. People had a lot more to think about when they were early on how to feed their brethren or how to feed their parents coming from third world countries. So they're trying to put those, instilling those uh, um, attitudes into us where we are thinking, hey, we're part of this Western culture. We shouldn't, like I said, we shouldn't have to be able to choose between religion and government or uh, ourselves and religion. We should be able to integrate all of them. And this creates an identity and creates a mosaic. The next generation of leaders need to succeed. Patience. Patience is number one. Um, Number two, understanding. And number three, the biggest thing I think as being a leader is compassion. Uh, Compassion for yourself, compassion for your neighbor, compassion for your friend, compassion for the community. Because one person who, when I started in this organization, told me when you're doing community work, you can never do enough. There's always going to be more that you have to do. And uh, this is something that I, I think of every single day when I feel like, dropping everything and leaving because it's so exhausting. Uh, I think of that, that, hey, you know what? If I'm not going to be doing it, someone else will be doing it. You know, those are some of the strong things I think leaders need to have is patience, understanding, compassion, and um, 
love what you do. You know, love what you do. So having that mindset all the time, knowing that you're held accountable for something, and at the same time that you might not tomorrow be able to do this, is something that we should that should drive us to continue to excel and continue to give those next leaders uh, the goals and the tools that they need to succeed. Because if they don't succeed, and if we don't succeed, the society doesn't succeed. And if the society doesn't succeed, then we're in trouble. Advice that I can give somebody who's doing, um, who wants to do or is doing one or is planning on doing one, be prepared for a life-changing. Programs like this change lives. Programs like this change attitudes and it changed my attitude. It changed my way of thinking and my life. And I still talk about it. Like, you know, uh, 10 years after, like, I still think of the day that I went and stepped into D.C. and I saw I saw the White House for the first time. Um, the first time I went and saw the Lincoln Monument, and I got to stand there and I seen this on TV. I don't think people really know how much of an impact it has on you until you leave the group and you're back into your regular occurrence, your daily your daily grind on what you're doing and how you're doing it, and you take those lessons that you learn um, from the visits that we've done to the individuals that are from different countries. Uh, from having that cup of coffee and just you know on a on a day that uh, if you as you know being part of the IVLP programs they're very excruciating. You're doing something every hour of the day, and uh, having some downtime really meant a lot to us. And uh, this is where we get to engage each other. So all I can say to the future of individuals that want to be joining IVLP or have uh, willing to join. Uh, be prepared for life-changing experiences. Thank you, Imtiaz, for sharing your story with us. And thank you, our listeners, for coming along on the journey. If you haven't yet, don't forget to subscribe to Voices of Exchange, wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends, too. Each episode, we strive to bring you inspiring stories from our global network of exchange alumni. Have an international exchange story yourself? Have any questions or suggestions? Email us at voicesofexchange@state.gov, or reach out to us on Instagram at Voices of Exchange. We would love to hear from you. You can also find out more information on our alumni and our global network at alumni.state.gov. This is Voices of Exchange.